be opening your Bibles to the 28th chapter, chapter 28 of the book of Isaiah. In chapter 28, in verses 7 through about 22, um, Isaiah gives a scathing rebuke to the people, and we're kind of right in the middle of that right now. Um, so we began, or we ended up last week, around, down around verse 14. Uh, where Isaiah says in verse 14 of chapter 28, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people in Jerusalem. So he's now addressing, he's now addressing the leaders of the people, the Hebrew people in Jerusalem, uh, talking about the fact that they've made a covenant with death, they've made a covenant with Sheol, and they're doing this to try and avert the impending doom that he says is coming from various uh, sources, from Assyria, from, uh, from other groups that will continually come in and trouble the people because of their sin. And so he talks about the fact that this infatuation that they have with sin, and this, this chapter 28, 7 through 22 is what he talks about. He talks about the people's infatuation with sin. Like they could do something, first of all, in this one, where they make this bargain with Sheol, enter into agreement with it. They're entering into this agreement hoping to avoid judgment, hoping to avoid destruction. So we'll make a deal with death. We'll make a deal with Sheol. And Isaiah says, that's not going to happen. It will come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. So they talk about, he talks about the fact that they lie so much. And you may know someone like this in your life, someone that lies all the time. They've made lies their refuge. They live a lie. And we know that someone who lies has to tell a lie, and then they have to tell another lie to cover that lie, and it's just a, it's just a building process. And that's what he's saying here. He says, it will not come to me, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehoods we have hidden ourselves. And so they make lies their refuge, they hide themselves under uh, falsehoods, they choose the wrong course continually, they act compulsively. Uh, you know, you read uh, a lot of times, and I saw this when I was in law enforcement, you would, you would arrest someone and the first thing they would tell you is you caught them red-handed. You caught them in, one in, in several instances, the guy had blood all over him. I didn't do this, I didn't have anything to do this, I was just walking by. You know, or I blacked out. You know, I don't remember what happened. I just blacked out. Well, they're covering themselves with these lies. They're hiding under falsehoods. They're trying to, trying to prove themselves to be guiltless when in fact, the very fact that they're in that place, uh, you know, says that they are guilty. And so what Isaiah continues on talking about here is, is, you know, they can rely only on themselves because they have no reliance in God. They've turned to other men. They've turned to, to, uh, to other leaders. They've turned to others other than God. And so they are, uh, they are in a most pitiful state. Remember that a lot of this that we're talking about in Isaiah has applicability to not only the individual, but from the individual to the family, by extension from the family to the society or to the nation. And so all of these things that we see, the people in their individual lives, have sinned. And then that sin is exacerbated at the family level because of causing the family to sin. Then society becomes poisoned as a whole. The nation becomes poisoned. And that's the point that we're at here with Isaiah. That's what Isaiah talks about continually through this book. 
And so everything that he talks about in this book, you can take and apply at the individual level. You can take it, you can apply it at the family level, and you can take it and apply it at the national level. That's what he's doing. And the sin that they saw in their time uh, is, is completely applicable today because we see exactly the same thing. One of the notes that I read this week while I was preparing for the lesson was the fact that we have this book that is, that is an, an amalgamation of the history of the Hebrew people. It's, it's, a, it's a compilation of all their sin. And we're 2,000 or more years removed from the Hebrew people that we're reading about in Isaiah, and their sin is still on display, even today, because we have the ability to read it in the Bible. We can read about their sin that occurred millennia ago. It's still there, and it's still ever-present. It's still before our eyes today. And I thought that was, that was, that was something that I, that I had never thought about. Your sin is on display Maybe not outwardly, but to God, your sin is on display. And your sin, if it's unrepentant sin, if you've not repented of that sin, that sin continues to be a historical thing in God's, in God's sight until that sin is, is repented of and forgiven. And so he says, but I have a solution. Isaiah says God has the solution. And the solution is in verse 16. The verse 16 is one that we read before, that we've heard before. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And so what he says here, he's talking now about something to come. All this that's transpired down through history There's going to be a sure cornerstone or a sure precious stone that's been laid. Remember that many of the stones that were used to build the temple were 30 or 40 feet long. They were absolutely huge stones that were were used to lay the cornerstones of the temple that was built in David's time. David and Solomon, the building, the the Solomon's building of the temple. These stones were absolutely huge in the build, uh, in the building. They're not like the bricks that we see today that we use to build houses. These things are, are massive. But there's a cornerstone that God is going to lay, and this is obviously a messianic prophecy of Christ's coming, that is a foundation that is tried, it's precious, it's sure. In other words, you can depend on it. And whoever believes on it will not be found wanting. And so in the middle of all this, he talks about the fact that all of these things that are being done by the people are going to have an end. There's going to be a, for that remnant, there's going to be that return. There's going to be that cornerstone. And verse 17, he says, he he also will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of the lies, these lies that they've lived under, and the waters will overflow the hiding places. And so God's judgment, his severity in his visitation on these people will correspond to the level of their guilt. And he's going to, <clears throat> he's going to as he says in, in verse 17, it's going to be broad, it's going to be deep, it's going to, have, it's going to be measurable severity based on uh, based on their guilt, and it will be literally destructive. Um, you know, verse 18, he talks about the fact that, that your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. All these things you say you're going to do, you're not going to be able to do them. 
When the overflowing scourge passes through, in other words, when these, when these armies pass through time after time after time, these conquering armies come through and they winnow the number of the people down by taking them hostage, by taking them off into captivity, by killing many of them. He says, this is, your, your, your stuff is just not going to stand. The overflowing scourge will pass through and you will be trampled down by it. And so there is sure and severe and predictable Literal destruction, sweeping away the false refuge in verse 18, tearing up the unholy contract in verse 19, and uh, uh, proceeding on a desolate path. Uh, no, no ability to, to gain any kind of comfort from any of this. And so there's going to be a suddenness to this. As often as it goes out, it will take you. From morning by morning it will pass over, day by day and by day and by night. It will be a terror just to understand. God has said that this type of behavior, this reliance on yourself, this reliance on other men, this reliance on other kings, as we've seen before with the Assyrians and <clears throat> some of the, some of the inroads that they were, that they were making toward this, these will not last. And so he finishes up this thought, um, and these last few verses before verse 23 where he changes the tone of his conversation. And notice what he says in verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch out on and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. What's he talking about here? Based on everything that we've talked about, based on everything that he said so far, the bed is too short. There's not enough covers. Well, not only were they not prepared for it, but... Go somewhere sometime and find, we used to have some, we used to have some couches at the house that were only these little two cushion couches. They were very short. And I'd try to stretch out on that. Have you ever had a couch or, or something like that or a bed that may be too short for you? You've gone somewhere and your feet stick off the end of the bed or men, maybe when you get into bed at night with your wife, she takes all the covers off of you because, I mean, she's got the covers and, and you don't, or you take all the covers from her. So what does that, what does that lead to? What, what is, you're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. The bed's too short. You're not comfortable. You can't sleep. You can't get any rest. So all these things that you've done for yourself, all these things that you've done to yourself by not following God, by not following his precepts, you've brought this upon yourself. The bed's too short. You don't have enough covers. The covers are too narrow for you to even get yourself wrapped up in to stay warm. You're uncomfortable. And this uncomfort that you feel is the uncomfort of sin, is the uncomfort of drifting away from God. For the Lord will rise up as Mount Perizim. He will, he, will he will be angry in the valley of Gibeon that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. So... You know, if you go back and you read, there are some things in First Chronicles that happen that are uh, references to uh, these very things where David uh, defeats, uh, with the help of God, he defeats. He rises up at Mount Pirazim, or Baal Pirazim is where the battle occurred, uh, and again in the Valley of Gibeon. So these are things that the people realize. Remember that what God has done for you. Remember what God has done for the people. And why are you acting this way? Why are you treating God this way? Why are you turning away from him? Now, therefore, verse 22, don't be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. And so 
you know, these acts that these people are engaging in, these things that they're doing have predetermined their destruction and the severity of, of God's judgment. And then in verse 23, the whole tone of Isaiah's uh, discourse with the people changes. Now he's going to talk to them instead of scolding them for what they've not done. He's going to tell them he's going to give them a way back. There's a way back. And what's the first thing that you have to do in verse 23? Give ear. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. You know, God gave us, you've heard this before, God gave us two ears and one mouth. We're supposed to be able to listen more than we talk. And that's one of my, one of my greatest failings. And so God says, give ear and hear my voice. Listen. And hear my speech. And now he talks about something that, you know, at first when you read about it, 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 in verse 24 through 29, it's not something that you readily relate to. But if we if we bring a little bit of this to the surface here, maybe a lot of this will make 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 sense. So he begins to talk about a plowman. So now what he's doing is he's making these analogies or these these comparatives. He's making these comparatives to uh, almost it's like animal husbandry. It's like look at look at the look at the agri, look at the agricultural land and how people that work the land look at how they look at how they do things. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? Okay, and we we remember in the New Testament about the parable of the sower, and so there's a there's a tr- tremendous analogy between these two, but there's also a tremendous analogy between what's done in a farming environment or an animal husbandry environment to illustrate the wisdom of God, and God continually uses these because these are things that the people could understand. So if you're a farmer, you know, the question is asked, does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Well, no, at some point the plowing is done. And what has to happen? The seed has to be sowed. And so we get the parable of the sower. Once the ground is uh, once the ground is laid, the, the sower goes out and, and they spread they spread the seed and some of the seed falls on good soil. Some of the seed falls on the roadway and some of the seed falls on land that hasn't been broken up. And talks about the various things that happen. So he's using this same, this same, if you will, agricultural analogy to talk about the presence and the power of divine wisdom and divine intelligence. He's talking about the Father and how he, how he, you know, how he watches over and through his providence works through the people. So, Useful lessons can be learned from this animal husbandry. Jesus even talks about the lilies of the valley. He talks about uh, the birds of the air. And we have all of this art and industry that we have, and, and it's, a simple, it's a simple comparative that Jesus uses and Isaiah uses here to talk about the land and how the land is used. And in, in that in that same vein talks about how the salvation, how the process of salvation works. Sure, sure. And I think that's, and I think that's, the, I think that's the very point that Isaiah is making here, and, and, and Jesus makes. Look at the birds; they continue on. 
There's a continuum uh, of bird activity every year. It's very predictable. We have birds at our house that are that come when the, the black-eyed Susans bloom. They're little yellow birds. They can't be more than about two inches long. They land on a black-eyed Susan to get the seeds, and the flower doesn't even move. They're so light. And... I could I, I could sit in the I could sit in the front window nook there of, of our dining room. I could watch that for hours. I mean that's that's God's creation at work. If you look at all the birds, not granted, I don't like crows. I, I don't I don't care for the crows that come around. They harass the rabbits and, and all the other animals out there. But you know, the birds and the beasts continue on from age to age, and God supplies their wants and their needs. Man is different. We're continually moving forward. We started out as hunter-gatherers. We moved to, then to grazing. Then we moved to agriculture. Then we moved to industry. Sometimes technology with blinding speed. And we have but to simply look at the birds and the beasts and the flowers to understand the simplicity of God's creation and how he looks out for us, how his providential care. You know, the fact that, that man is taught by God, and he talks about that down here in this, uh, in this last, in, in verse 26. For he instructs him in righteousness, or he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. All the inventions that you've seen down through the years, all of the innovations that have made technology for want of either really good technology or some bad technology, all of these things, God has worked providentially through these people. It's the intelligence that man displays that's a God-given intelligence. His God doth instruct him, verse 26. It comes from him who is wonderful in counsel, down in verse 29. He talks about that. The intelligence, the shrewdness, the inventiveness, the patience, the foresight, all of these things that are manifested in both husbandry and in industry go far to assure us that God is near and that he is laying his hand upon us. He's touching the springs of our mind. He's calling forth this intellectual fount and our moral facilities, though immeasurably inferior to God, are yet a, a notice that he is working through man. And God is capable of these great things. So the plowman, he breaks the plow, he breaks the ground. He levels the surface. He sows the cumin. He sows the wheat in its rows. He sows the barley, the spelt. These are things that had to be learned over time. This was not something where people just came out and said, well, I've got a handful of the seed. I'm just going to throw it on the ground and see what happens. The agricultural process down through time was a, was a winnowing of various types of species down to a species that would produce the greatest amount of grain. And so as you, as you see this process move along, God instructs, God teaches. And so bread flour must be ground, verse 28. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever. He breaks it, on the, he breaks it on the cartwheel and he crushes it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. So judgment from God mingled with mercy from God, with hope. And the most important part is that we understand that God is moving providentially through all this. And, and I, I'm not going to go 
anywhere near trying to explain to you how God's providence works. God's providence is, is his providence. And you've seen it in your life. Russell's seen it. We've seen it on display at Camp Reedy. You know, Russell's told us time after time of the providence of God and how that works. I don't understand that. Russell doesn't understand that. But we accept that. We accept that providence that things that are, that God wants to happen, if he puts it, if we put our mind to work and we put our back to the, to the plow, those things will happen. Daryl? Sure. Yeah. So, chapter 29. The siege of Jerusalem. Is how this is, is how this is captured in, in my notes. It's the spirit of the city of God is, uh, verses one through eight. Uh, initially in verse one of chapter 29, it says, woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Well, where did David dwell? He dwelt in Jerusalem. So this must be a reference to Jerusalem. This is an archaic reference. Um, Ariel is an archaic reference, uh, to, uh, some mystical name for Jerusalem. Uh, it's a parallel to uh, Shejbach, which is the which is the mystical name for Babylon that you find in Jeremiah 25. Um, there are others that are in there are others that are mentioned in the Bible, but this is the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, lest feasts come around. Yet I will distress Jerusalem. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as to Jerusalem. I will encamp around. Or I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise, raise siege works against you. You will be brought down. So, verses 1 through 8 talk about Jerusalem and the punishment that's coming to Jerusalem. And down about verse 8, you'll see that, uh, uh, or no, you'll be punished by the Lord, verse 6, with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Jerusalem, even all who fight against her in her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. And even it shall even be as a hungry man dreams, and he looks to eat, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. Or when a man, or when a man who is thirsty dreams, and he looks in his dream and he drinks, but when he awakes he is indeed still faint, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. So, He's giving another, this is another woe, this is another one, one of the many woes that Isaiah has talked about that we've been looking at since about chapter 22. So, the city of Jerusalem is here being compared to, or could be compared to, the church. And so let's look at, let's look at a few of the things in this, these first eight verses that talk about that. So, Jerusalem was the city where the temple was. And therefore, that was the place where God dwelt. God dwelt in the temple. This was the place where God decided to tabernacle with his people. And so Jerusalem was a very special city to God. Um, it was the place of his abode. And so the church today is the place of God's abode. The hearts of Christians who come to worship. The church is a building. The ecclesia is the people, are the people that worship God. So we make up, we make up the church. God dwells in us. This is the place where God dwells. So the analogy, the comparatives between, uh, between Jerusalem and the church. And so what else, what else is, what else is Jerusalem compared to the church today? Well, um, a second thing might be this is a place of sacrifice. The church or Jerusalem was the place where everyone came for yearly feasts. 
to be together to sacrifice to God. Does that sound like the church? Do we come here to make sacrifice? Did we make sacrifices this morning? Did you make a sacrifice this morning? Did you sacrifice when you came here this morning? What are our sacrifices to God? Okay, the contribution is a sacrifice. What did we what did we spend a large majority of our time doing today? Praying and singing. Singing is praise to God. That's a sacrifice. The offerings of praise. Hebrews 13:15. Okay, we sacrifice our will. Um, we consecrate. We gather around the Lord's table to remember his sacrifice until he comes again. Consecration, Romans 12 and 1. Our sacrifices are kindness to one another. Hebrews 13, verse 16. All of these things that we do in worship, just as what they did in Jerusalem when they came to sacrifice, all of these things that we do in worship are acceptable if we do them in the right manner. These things are acceptable to God. 1 Peter 2, 5. Harold? And I think it, I think that leads to the next, the next point that I want to make. So that's a great segue. It is a place where you have to make plans together. You know, these people just didn't get up out of their cities and their homes and where they lived and just decide, well, it's Monday. I guess we'll better, we better head to Jerusalem. We're no planning. God told the people when he wanted them to sacrifice. He told them the feasts and the festivals that he wanted them to come together for. This was not only a time of, 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 of sacrifice. It was not only a time of consecration, but it was a time for the people to get together. Like-minded people coming together in Jerusalem to sacrifice, to be together. You know, add year to year, Isaiah 29, verse 1. The festivals came from year to year. He is speaking to the people about this time that they're coming to gather together. I don't know about you, but when I come here, there's a sense of strength that I get from my fellowship with other Christians. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for Sunday mornings. I can't wait to get here and see and to see y'all. It, it is just it is just something that I don't have to be reminded. Oh, Sunday morning, I get it. I know where I'm supposed to be on Sunday morning. I know what my obligation is to God. I know what my my the desire for me to come here and to sacrifice. Jerusalem was what Jehovah meant it to be, and it in its in its. State when the people were all together. It was a place where the people of God came together in this in this happy and holy communion together. Yeah. Correct. Correct. There have to there have to be plans made. Spontaneous Christianity is. I don't know. I don't know that that exists. I don't think that you can just be a, a spontaneous Christian. Christianity is something that you have to focus on. You have to give time. You have to give diligence to doing. It has to be deliberate. Anything less is not acceptable to God. I wish you'd quit looking at my notes because that's the exact very next thing that I wanted to talk about. Jerusalem was troubled, was it not, from outside forces? It's, he's exactly correct. We have outside forces today. Things are troubling the church. Things are troubling each of us. Things are troubling our families. Remember we talked about the individual, the family. The society, the nation, all of these things build, but it starts with the individual. It starts with the individual Christian. The individual Christian today is being troubled. The family is being troubled. 
And if you don't, if you don't believe me, you're not paying attention. Society is being troubled. The family unit is trying to be destroyed. It's trying to be undone. The church is trying to be undone. And so just as this was a central gathering place for these feasts and the festivals and the consecration and the worship to God at the altar, it's also a place that God says he's going to bring, there's going to be heaviness and sorrow, verses 2 through 4. The church, society, family, the individual are all going to be troubled. God will send, uh, God will send his blessings. He will send his chastisement. And I love, I love this. One, one scholar wrote this down. The author of peace will be the source of its sorrow. The author of its peace will be the source of its sorrow. And so this besieged city that's been ravaged by these various conquerors for years and years and years bears strong resemblances, I think, to, to the church. And I think there are some comparisons that can be made. Um, verses 9 through 12 uh, talks about spiritual incapacity. And we talk about, and you've seen people like this, there are people that are born with physical incapacities. Um, you might have a child um, that uh, has a club foot, or you may see a child that has Down syndrome. You may see a child that has a, a mental disorder or, or some kind of a, a mental defect that, you know, it, 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 it pulls, it tugs at our heartstrings. And so we see physical and we see mental um, uh, uh, helplessness, I guess, is, is, a, is a good word for it. People who are not, who are not fully functional in society. And we feel for these people when we see them. At least I do. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big fan of the of the buddy house and the Down syndrome kids. I mean, I I've dealt I've dealt with Down syndrome children for you know many years, just being around them and everything, and they're wonderful. But it tugs at my heartstrings. But nothing tugs at or should tug at your heartstrings more than spiritual incapacity, spiritual retardation, if you will. Spiritual defectiveness. And that's what he's talking about here in, in verses 9 through 12. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he's covered your heads, namely the seers, the whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate and say, read this, please. And they say, I cannot, for it's sealed. And then they take the book and deliver it to one who's illiterate and say, read this, please. And they say, I cannot, for I am illiterate. Therefore, the Lord has said insomuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. So he's talking here about this type of the spiritual, the spiritual incapacity. And he talks about spiritual incapacity from the standpoint of being blind, falling into a deep sleep, Staggering, 
These people are not drunk. They stagger due to their ignorance. They stagger due to their lack of intelligence in being able to realize who God is and what he's done for them. They're not drunk. They're not drunk with drink. They're drunk with ignorance. You know, there's a difference between being ignorant and stupid. And so, you know, you need to, you need to know the difference. They stagger but not with strong, strong drink. So these false notions that they have, these evil habits that they've entered into, these, they, it's made them blind. The, the literate cannot read. And the illiterate, they can't read. So they're at a loss both. And so it's complete. It's from the prophet to the seer. It extends to the highest elements of society. Your rulers, verse 10, a sleep has fallen upon them. It's fallen upon those who are supposed to know the truth, the literate. It's fallen upon them because they get the book and they say, well, I can't read it because it's sealed. And so it's fallen upon them. It's fallen upon, it's fallen upon those who are deprived of, of this, the, deprived of their spiritual powers. They, they have this spiritual incapacity. And so in verse 13 then, he moves on to talking about the people, in this case, that God is condemning, but to a larger extent, this can be extended to the church also. So let's look at, let's look at this. Verses 13 through 17 is where he talks about this. Therefore, the Lord says, insomuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Watch that sentence. That's in the, those two sentences are very important. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around, Isaiah says, with an exclamation point at the end. Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed of the clay? And shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? It is not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. All right. Did you catch all that? So let's look at that. This is, a, this is a descriptor in 13 through 17. This is a descriptor of the church, the church that God condemns. And everywhere in there are some points that you should be able to, to, te- to tease out. All right, first. So the people draw near to me with their mouth. All right, let's go back up to uh, the people draw near to me in their mouth. Verse 13. They draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. What's he talking about there? What's he talking about there? Well, let's use it. Let's use it. Let's use it in the modern church. Let's use it in modern church parlance. The people draw near to me with their lips. They honor me, but their hearts are far from me. So what are they doing? They're, they're going through the motions. You might call it lip service. They're here on Sunday morning, but they ain't here on Sunday morning, if you know what I mean. 
Their mind is somewhere else. Their thoughts are somewhere else. They're not focusing on the, they're not focusing on the worship. Verse 13 says, the ma- this people draws near to me as their mouth. Their service of their lips is not paying homage to God. It's an unacceptable sacrifice. You may as well not even be here. You may as well not even be here. So what he's talking about first here, the first thing is unspiritual worship. To take something that is holy, to take something, to take some place like this building where we come to, to gather to worship God and just be here, just to be here, you're here for the wrong reason. Stay home. Don't even bother God with this because your worship will be unacceptable. So why are you wasting your time? You've got to come here with the right spirit. You've got to, you've got to write. So the first thing he talks about is unspiritual worship. All right? So. Watch that last sentence in verse 13. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. What does that mean? And is there a New Testament analogy? Teaching for doctrine, the commandments of men. Matthew 15, verse 9. So what are they doing here? They're teaching an unauthorized doctrine. It's a doctrine of the commandments of men. They're taking what God says, and their fear toward me is something that's being generated by men. It's not the authorized doctrine, an unauthorized or an early departure from the will of Christ. Look at Colossians 2, look at Titus 1, Acts 20. The church will always be in danger of men who are going to teach what they want rather than what God wants. And if you find yourself in a place where that is being taught, you need to flee. You don't need to stay there. It reminds me of, of, a, of a congregation that I visited in where was it? Colorado Springs, Colorado. Church of Christ. The name over the building was the Church of Christ. I felt comfortable going there. The preacher got up into the the podium and gave a homily and talked about feeling good, talked about all of this, all of these wonderful things that we could do and how we could do this and how we could do that and how the church needed to do that. How much scripture did he quote? How much scripture did he use to substantiate what he was talking about? Zero. And what did I tell him afterwards as I shook his hand as I was exiting the door? I told him, I said, you know, I think I have the right as a Christian to hear the Bible quoted, to hear the Bible used in a sermon. I, I wasn't, I didn't think that was, I didn't think that was acceptable worship. When you get up in the, when you get up in the pulpit and tell jokes and just talk about stuff and you're not using a, a modicum of scripture when you're trying to give a lesson, there may be something embedded in there that might be scriptural, but you can't even quote the scripture. Why, why are you even up there? Unauthorized doctrine. All right? Verse 14. A marvelous thing. For the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall be hidden. So what do they have in verse 14? The wisdom of their wise shall perish. They've got people teaching who don't know anything about Scripture. They've got people teaching up there that are incapable of teaching. They're unsuitable. They're incompetent. They've lost their way. And they're taking everybody along with them. 
they failed to discover or they've abjectly abandoned any heavenly wisdom at all. And they make it and they declare it to people that, like, this is a way of life. You should, you should live like this. Well, they're incapable of teaching. So unspiritual worship, unauthorized doctrine, incapable teachers. All right, what's 15 say? Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us or who knows us? Well, these are not the teachers now. Now he's turned it back on the membership. Now he's turned it back on the people. Now he's turned it back on the ecclesia. He's turned it back on those people. He said, they don't have the intelligence to ask a question, to entertain such a thought. They have, and it's an ignorant church. Because no one rises to question the person who's giving this unauthorized doctrine. There's no one who rises to say this is not acceptable worship. There's no one who rises to say this teacher is incapable of teaching. They're just going along. Who sees us? Nobody's watching us. Sure. They thought all of their evil could be hidden. And so uh, unspiritual worship, unauthorized doctrine, incapable teachers, and an unintelligent or unenlightened membership spells doom for the church as it did for as it did for Jerusalem here. Okay? Go ahead. I'm sorry, what now? Sure. Sure. And, and, and people who read their Bibles, people who study on a regular basis, who crack the book, open more than on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, would know these kind of things. And they would be able to stand up and say, what you're teaching is wrong. This is not right. You need to be held account. You need to be held accountable. So the remainder of the, uh, the, remainder of the chapter... Um, he talks about these, these divine warnings. But then in verse 18, he talks about what we'll call the hour of revival. Okay, Verses 18 down through the end of the chapter. 18 through the end of the chapter. In that day, and we've seen this term before, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble shall also increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is, is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who make a man an offender by the word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turns aside the just by empty words? Therefore, therefore, based on all of this that's gone before, thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall now not be ashamed, nor shall his face grow pale. And when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. They also who erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complained will learn doctrine." So there's an, there's an hour coming in the which the deaf will hear the words of the book, verse 18. Those who've erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and those who've murmured shall learn doctrine, verse 24. There is a time when this, this, these things that he's talked about with regard to the church or the people, the Hebrew people, there's going to be a time when there's going to be an hour of revival. There's going to be a, a spirit of uh, of docileness that will come. There's a spirit of, there's a power of spiritual perception. The eyes of the blind shall see, verse 18. 
God will wake the sleeping sinner whose eyes have been dulled with sleep, who's fallen asleep. He will awaken them. There will be gladness uh, in verse 19. Joy in the Lord will be increased, not only in the part of, on, on the part of the meek, but all those who are affected by this divine truth. So they will awaken, and Jacob will not be ashamed. So man will not be ashamed. The, the, the people of God will not be ashamed. The faces will not wax pale, verse 22. And there will be unbounded joy, and they will sanctify the name of the Holy One, verse 23. The fathers and mothers in Israel, the leaders and the teachers in the church, both will exalt in this extension of purity, of wisdom, among all the people, all of these things will be, will be put aside. And there will be a, a disappearance of iniquity. There will be a disappearance of iniquity. The oppressor, the scorner, the vicious, the, un, the unrighteous, uh, verses, 9, verses 20 and 21, talk about those uh, who will be cut off. There will be joy in the Lord. Iniquity will disappear. And what, in the last analysis, is the source of it all? When he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, he will hallow, they will hallow my name, they will hallow the Holy One of Jacob, and fear the God of Israel. And so all those who are the true children of God, the work of my hands, this true children, verse 23, everything is his workmanship. His children are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. And it's all from God. He is the spirit that renews the face of the earth. He revives the souls of men. And he conditions his church for the good things that come as well as those challenges that will come. So what do we get from all this in the last, in the last minute? These two chapters together, we can look hopefully and faithfully toward the promises of God. God has made promises to us. We have hope, the anchor of the soul. We can hope for better and brighter days in the future. Though we're surrounded on all sides, by Satan and by his devices, we can hope for a better day. We can submit ourselves to the grace and the power of God. He has compassion for us. He has mighty power that will take care of us if we just believe. And we need to look to devout and earnest preparation on our part. We cannot just spontaneously. We we must prepare the Lord's way. We must make straight that way and get out and do the things that we need to do. First of all, cleansing our hearts of all the dross, the selfishness, the sin, the pride, and the unbelief with an eager expectation that God will provide for us as we go forward to do his work. All right. So next week, we'll stop there. We'll, we'll begin with, with chapter 30 next week uh, where uh, uh, Isaiah talks about, again, about going down to Egypt. And uh, we'll begin with chapter 30. Good Lord willing, next week. Thank you.